Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to NJSBA's Blog Talk Radio show, Conversations on New Jersey Education, a program to uh, created to bring the education issues to you and the school uh, education leaders and state political leaders to you. My name is Ray Penny. I'll be your host this morning. Uh, before I get started, however, I would like to have uh, Barbara tell you how to participate in the program. Hi, everybody. I'm Barbara. I'm going to be your call screener today. So to call in, please dial 1-347-989-8904. I'll repeat that at the end. When you do that and you're ready to make a comment or ask a question, just press 1 on your phone. That will indicate to me that you have something to say. I'll get your name and your question or topic, and we'll put you on the air. If you're listening on the computer, we do have a chat room feature that you can log into, and we will be monitoring the chat room and pass along some of the comments or questions to our speaker. To log on to the chat room, you will need to register with Blog Talk Radio. That number again to dial in is 1-347-989-8904. Thanks, Barb. Uh, for school districts, special education has always been a difficult balancing act. They have the students who, by definition, need extra needs, and yet they have limited resources. They are criticized for either denying students a proper placement by some, and other state leaders criticize them for spending too much money in this area. I look at it as almost a no-win situation for school districts. And special education is also rife with legal issues, with uh, placements that parents may question or services that they may desire. Uh, and when I thought about addressing legal issues in special education as my topic, one person's name immediately came to mind, and that was my guest, Nathaniel Simon. She's an attorney with Schwartz, Simon, Edelstein, and Kelso, and is very experienced with education law in general, but also particularly with special education law. Welcome, Nathaniel. Thank you very much, Ray. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, to be participating with whoever else is out there. <laughs> I'll find out later who's who's listening. Um, before we get started on the issue, could you uh, give us a little bit of background, how long you've been with the firm and been doing education law? Sure. Uh, I am, I'll go even further back. I just would like to do a very brief background. Um, I'm a graduate of the Newark Public School System. I then attended the University of Rhode Island, where I was a psychology major, and Seton Hall University School of Law for uh, a general law background, I was fortunate enough to then secure employment through your organization, the New Jersey School Boards Association, uh, for several years uh, and obviously represented the collective interests of school boards in that capacity. And from there, joined with the firm that I am still a member of, which is uh, Schwartz, Simon, Edelstein, and Celso. Uh, specializing in the representation of school districts throughout the state. And as you indicated, uh, I have had a particular interest in student matters and the areas of special education. Great. Actually, I forgot that you had started with New Jersey School Board Association. Um, <laughs> and to our listeners, that's not why I asked her. Uh, I asked her for because of her background. Um, districts... Uh, sometimes look at their special ed costs, and they have their, their placement costs and their regular special ed costs, but they also oftentimes have litigation. Um, what can a district do to kind of prevent litigation to head it off? Is there best practices that they can do? 
Well, what I thought I would do just briefly before um, going right to that is to just give a little bit of a historical background on what is the purpose of special education and what does Mm -hmm. Congress and the state have in mind. And so then we certainly can more appreciate what the best practices are in order to implement that and prevent litigation. The, The basic purpose and the underlying movement for special education, which started out as the Education for All Handicapped Act and is now known as the uh, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, was to ensure that all children between the ages of 3 and 21 who have been identified as having a qualifying disability have available to them what is been known now as FAPE, which is a free, appropriate public education designed to meet their unique needs. And the basic underlying purpose was to prevent the exclusion of disabled children from the public schools and to ensure that the rights of children with disabilities, as well as their parents, were legally protected. So we see that there is both a procedural as well as a substantive uh, impact upon this area of the law. The procedures, therefore, that are utilized in the area of special education are equal to or sometimes even more important than the actual substance. And by that I mean the procedures that are outlined in the state laws, the federal laws, the state regulations, and the federal regulations must be adhered to rather stringently in order to be sure that when you present your case, if you are challenged, you do not have a significant procedural violation that would override all of the aspects of the child's services and program from a substantive point of view. So, so one – I'm sorry. Go ahead. So, but um, when you're talking about those procedures, aren't there's a lot of procedures. So it, is it kind of easy to slip up or uh, in that in that area? It is uh, rather easy if if there is not uh, the following types of components. Number one, it is important to have competent and sufficient and sufficiently trained staff who are familiar on a regular basis with all of those procedures because really a board of education delegates obviously to its superintendent, the superintendent then perhaps to a director of special services or an assistant uh, superintendent in charge of student matters, the responsibility to ensure compliance. And it is then turnkeyed back down to the school-based level, which is the case managers, the members of your child study teams, to really have the lead on ensuring compliance. And it must be emphasized to them the importance of that through the board level, through the administration at the board uh, level, such as the superintendent or the assistant superintendent or the director, how important that must be. With computers, that has certainly assisted members of the child study team because there are many, many programs out there that do allow for uh, templates to be used that incorporate all of the legal procedural elements of notice to parents for meetings, notice to parents about their IEP, notice to parents about their 
uh, evaluations and their reevaluations and about the change in placement and program and so forth. But the failure, this is this is key. The failure to comply fully can result in a very challenging uh, matter for a school district when they are confronted with a piece of litigation saying, you know, your program has not provided what would be called a free, appropriate public education to my child, and you can't even get to the nature of the services because, for example, you didn't hold the meeting in full compliance with the regulation, or the notice to the parent was in some way defective, or the IEP itself was issued late and in violation of the timelines. So these are all very important issues to to be mindful of. So um, if a parent is questioning a placement or a service, if I'm hearing you correctly, uh even a small procedure that you didn't notify the parents in time or there was a, some small thing with the meeting, maybe somebody wasn't in attendance at the meeting, that could have a significant impact uh, in that litigation. Let me say this. There are some minor procedural violations that some judges will overlook, uh, but it complicates the case. So would that be sufficient to override an entire case it might not be and i'm i'm not saying that it would however it is an an additional complication mm-hmm. if you have a meeting and it is not in full compliance i think that some are much more severe than others for example obviously holding a meeting without the parent would be a very significant violation on the other hand failing to have a uh, a parent notified 10 days in advance of the meeting, but yet they still show up, a judge is not going to view that type of violation mm-hmm. as significant. Does the training extend – I mean, obviously the child study team is, is extremely important and your director of special service and the administrators. Does the training for special ed really go down to the entire staff, the entire teaching staff? Well, I think that that can be helpful. Obviously, all of the components of the IEP team should receive some training uh, with regard to the procedures. For example, your staff in terms of the teachers, the related service providers, such as your speech therapists, your occupational therapists, your physical therapists, all of the staff that are working with the child directly should be always aware of any changes in the IEP, should be aware of any changes that occur with regard to the child, uh, him or herself, that could affect the delivery of the services, should be in communication with the case manager, and should be aware of how to bring a concern to the case manager if there is one, and also should be made aware of the fact of how important it is for them to participate in the process. It's not a we versus them issue. It's not a regular ed versus special ed issue. A lot of times the general education teachers are less inclined to want to participate. And what I would say to that is they need to understand that they are extremely important because, again, going back to the purpose of IDEA is to ensure that the disabled child is included and a active participant to the greatest extent possible with the non-disabled peers. 
And therefore, many of our disabled children are placed in inclusion settings, and the general education teacher is responsible for those students and needs to be sensitive to all of the process that goes behind the IEP process. Um, when uh, districts are trying to, the child study teams trying to provide a good service to a, a student, but they still can't come to an agreement, and it looks like there's going to be litigation. It comes before the board to see, you know, it's a, a an issue. What should the board be asking the administration before they proceed with litigation? Are there any questions they should be asking? Certainly, I think that a board of education should, on a periodic basis, be updated on all of what is going on in the area of special education. It is such a big part, as you started out in saying, of their budget and of the services and, quite honestly, of their active citizenry because of all the parents that are involved in your school district, some of the more vocal will always be those parents who are advocating for their disabled child. So they should always be aware of what are the issues of concern. So if you have an individual who is particularly uh, vocal and it has gone so far as to file a due process petition, I think it is important for a Board of Education to be aware of that petition and to know what is it that the parent is challenging. Is it a program? Is it a placement? Is it a teacher? Is it a matter of hiring someone that perhaps this parent would be more satisfied with that is of an expertise that we don't have? The other thing, is it a one-year situation or a multi-year situation? Mm -hmm. For example, I do believe in a cost-benefit analysis on any piece of litigation. The costs of litigation are extremely high in all cases, but none more so than in this area for the following additional reason that you would not have in most litigation. The way the IDEA was drafted, it provides for a fee-shifting in this type of litigation. And by fee-shifting, what I mean is... In the event a parent hires an attorney and the attorney litigates the case against the school district and the parent prevails, all of the legal costs associated with that litigation are reimbursable by the board to the parent, in addition to whatever services or other award they may be given through the litigation. So it can be an extraordinarily costly matter to go to a full due process hearing mm -hmm. through to decision. So I do recommend that when boards are faced with litigation that they do somewhat of a cost-benefit analysis. And for example, again, if you have a student who is in first grade and is looking for out-of-district placement that you feel is not warranted, you can appreciate that a $50,000 minimum out-of-district placement with transportation is costly if that's going to continue from first grade through to graduation. On the other hand, if the student who is litigating the case is in 11th or 12th grade or even you know, throughout a high school year or right. is perhaps 17 or 18 years of age and is looking to continue through 21, that's certainly a different situation because the litigation could take a year and even if you prevail, the cost of a settlement could perhaps be less than the cost of 
taking the risk of that litigation. So that's something I do recommend that a board ask for from their attorney, from their superintendent, to look at what are the issues, what is being challenged, how much would we anticipate the cost to be, what is the cost-benefit analysis, and lastly, I think we do need to look at what will this mean to our community? In other words, if we prevail, obviously that precedent is a good message to your community. But what if we lose? How many other students and parents could this affect for mm-hmm. for the future? Uh, and by that I mean if they're challenging your program and you have, let's say, 12 or 15 students who are currently very satisfied with that program, what would be the damage that would be done if a judge were to rule that program is not appropriate for one of the children in that class? Would that harm the balance of that program's operation. So there are many factors that a board should look at, and I know that the knee-jerk reaction is always to defend the program and to believe that it is an outstanding, excellent program. And many times, in fact, most of the times, as an attorney who represents probably about 75 to 100 school districts in this area, the programs are excellent. They are being provided with competent staff, and the paperwork is outstanding. But that doesn't mean you still don't want to consider a reasonable yeah. settlement under certain circumstances. Uh, we're talking with Nathaniel Simon, an attorney, school board attorney. If you have a question on special ed law, d- dial one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four and press one so that we know you have a question. Um, other laws could affect uh, special education. Uh, recently, we had the anti-bullying law. Has there been any effect, any cases that you've dealt with where that has impacted special ed? Absolutely. The anti-bullying law states that when students have reported incidents of bullying, you look at certain categories and certain aspects about that student that almost create what I would call a prima facie case, which means just by the status of the student, there is a likelihood that the student will be considered part of that anti-bullying legislation. Certainly, when you have students who are already identified and classified with known disabilities, the statistics do demonstrate that there is a higher likelihood that that student could be identified also as a victim under uh, the anti-bullying, as well as statistics show that many times the perpetrators are classified students who have behavioral disorders, have a lack of good judgment, are impulsive, and have many disabilities Mm. behaviorally and socially that impact upon this law that really the law, the anti-bullying law, does not speak to any exception for. So this becomes an extremely challenging uh, area of law, the commingling of something like an anti-bullying law, which looks at both discipline and remediation, when you're dealing with a classified student where really what you're focusing on is remediation. I had one very interesting case involving a student in which 
it was clearly commingled when a student alleged that she was unduly bullied, harassed at mm-hmm. school as a result of an incident that was substantiated with another boy. Um, but what happened was, as we know, in middle school can often happen, it took on a life of its own whereby the other students started to uh, allegedly, again, was very difficult to substantiate the extent of it, but the girl herself, uh, who had been the victim of definitely uh, an incident with this other boy, felt that the other children were siding with the boy and harassing and bullying her to a point that she could no longer come to school. And ultimately, in that case, the judge ruled that the uh, girl was eligible to be considered emotionally disturbed because of post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis and was eligible to be placed in an alternative public school to be away from those students since she claimed that she had an inability to come to school and feel safe. So there is a definite interrelationship of these cases and I can't say that I can counsel 100% how all of these cases will go but it's a heightened sensitivity that administrators and boards need to be aware of that when there are incidents under the anti-bullying and it does involve special education that we ensure that we are not just looking at the punitive or disciplinary aspects but are significantly considering what remediation, what supports, what other aspects can be added to that child's program and day to ensure that there is no repetition. That's a, that's an interesting case because I, I know we were all concerned about special ed students being involved in both being bullied or being bullied. I hadn't occurred to me that the bullying act would create a special ed uh, classification. Um, let me just switch gears a little bit. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, technology. You know, we we talk a lot about for our board members and school administrators about the being careful with emails and. Uh, those type of things for the Sunshine Law. Is there, with confidentiality and emails, is there an issue with special ed? It's very interesting, again, that you do bring up technology. And I I brought up technology because in the 1997 and then 2004 uh, revisions and reauthorization to the IDEA by Congress, there was an extensive discussion and consideration to assistive technology and technology as a resource for special education and as services for students. And I brought it up in the context of the rapidity which with uh, uh, that uh, child study teams and members of the IEP team can both draft and access IEP documents as well as communicate with each other. We know that it is here to stay. Computer technology is really invaded uh, all aspects of operations of school district, from the business to the educational and academic. And many of these uh, communication systems are thought to be confidential or thought to be private 
in terms of both communication with parents, communication with other staff, communication with outside providers. That may or may not always hold true. And what I would say is that under the regulations, it is very clear that all documents, all communications concerning students and particularly in the area of students and their education through special education must have the highest degree of privacy and confidentiality as possible and that there needs to be limited access on the computer systems that we use as well as limited uh, continuation of documentation on the computer as we move forward. Uh, With respect, I I just wanted to say one additional thing, Ray. With mm -hmm. specific respect to emails, you and I had uh, spoken about an interesting matter that I had just a few years ago with a parent because one thing that is very different in the area of special education from representing school districts as we do in other areas, many times, in a substantial number of times, parents will represent themselves. And because of that, it sometimes will take an interesting twist on how the case will go because lawyers have a way of thinking that is very regimented and very uh, structured, whereas parents are kind of, you know, I'm representing my child. It's much more emotional. It's much more uh, layman's terms. And so I had a case with a parent who was – very computer savvy, had saved all of her emails that had been sent back and forth between the case manager and she and wanted to introduce them into evidence, which at that time, basically, since they were in lieu of written communication or a telephone call, the judge uh, allowed and I did not object. However, she then made a very interesting request, was which was, I would like to see all of the emails that went back and forth between the teachers and the members of the child study team concerning the issues that I discussed just with the case manager and that are retained by the district. I objected, said, well, wait a second, those are internal communications. Those are almost in the nature of work product. I don't think that those should be discoverable. They were anticipated to be kept between the staff. The judge overruled that and said, no, I think that there is a, there could be something contained in there that could be relevant to the issues that we are looking at in terms of this child's services. Well, we settled the case very quickly after that because, unfortunately, many of those emails were written in such a way that they would have been extraordinarily embarrassing to those staff members who had sent them. For example... That nut job is still asking about that particular situation, referring to the mother. You do not want to put an email like that in front of a judge when a parent is challenging a case. So what I would say about emails is, yes, most of them can be uh, 
avoided in litigation, but if there is litigation and there is a demand for discovery, many times the emails that you thought would be confidential, that you thought would be internal work product, may not always turn out that way. So staff need to be reminded that they need to conduct themselves professionally in all their communications that are written, including emails. Yeah, well, we, I think one of our first things was training for staff. So I guess that would be one of the things for all staff. And it's probably not just in special education. It's probably no. for everything. <laughs> it is for everything. I mean, we all use it almost like a telephone call. And sometimes we get very friendly and sometimes we say things. And obviously when they're off the record, that's one thing. But when you start including some of these concerns in an email, and then there is a challenge or, like you mentioned, an Oprah request or a Sunshine Law request. These things are available and must become transparent, and we have to be very careful. Now, again, an Oprah request would not be available because these are confidential student matters as a matter of law, and that is an exception. So under the Sunshine Law as well as under Oprah, I'm not as concerned about that type of communication by email. But in the context of a special education due process, it could be discoverable. We're talking with Nathania Simon, uh, an inter- school board attorney. Uh, if you want to ask her a question, dial one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four and press 1, and we'll take your question. Um, uh, Nathania, uh, uh, there's the IDEA, but there's also something called a 504 that school districts uh, deal with. How does that fit into all this? Yes, well, there are two specific differences between the uh, 504 and IDEA. The first is, and it's a very significant one, and that is the structure of the law itself. Section 504, which started out as part of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, is a anti-discrimination law. What I mean by that is, When you have a law that is considered an anti-discrimination or civil rights law, it is a matter of public policy. It is a law that Congress or the state determines to be of significant value to change behavior in a way that fosters whatever the principles or whatever you are trying to do. So, for example... In the case of 504, which has now become part of the Americans with Disabilities Act, what the public policy is, is to state that persons identified to have, again, a qualifying disability shall not be discriminated against on the basis of Mm -hmm. that disability and shall have equal access with reasonable accommodation. That is in contrast to IDEA. IDEA not only sets our public policy, which again also does try to ensure that every student has equal access, but also is a mandate to follow it because of the fact that it is a funding law. The IDEA puts money into the pocket of the state, who then puts money into the pockets of the local educational agencies, the LEAs, the school districts, and says, 
you are accepting this money, and therefore, by accepting this money, you are agreeing to comply with all of the rules and regulations associated with this piece of legislation. Why I say this is different significantly is because when you deal with Section 504, you are not dealing with any funding. All of the services, all of the reasonable accommodations that you are providing under 504 are self-funded by the employer or by, in this case, the school district. Therefore, if a student has a disability that does not warrant special education classification but does warrant reasonable accommodation, that reasonable accommodation balancing test can include an economic factor. It cannot be a factor economics with special education. Mm -hmm. So these are significant differences. There will be some overlap. For example, Almost every student identified and classified under IDEA also could claim eligibility under 504. However, the child would only be entitled to the IEP and not a 504 plan as well as an IEP. Once you are classified under IDEA and are afforded an IEP, you do not get a 504 plan. If, however, you are not eligible under IDEA, which does have more stringent criterion uh, criteria for eligibility but would be qualified under 504 then you would be entitled to what's known as a reasonable accommodation plan developed by administrators and a team of people that may or may not include a child study team member in terms of what that accommodation would be and some of the accommodations are based on a physical condition for example, if a student is in a wheelchair but otherwise cognitively intact, it might involve the ability to use an elevator. It might involve the ability to have a second set of books in the home. It might involve an exemption from certain types of physical activity and an alternative way in which that student can access physical education classes. And those are the types of things that you would see in a 504 plan. In contrast, in an IEP, you would see more things like a change in placement to a smaller class setting with academic and curriculum modifications. So there are some very significant uh, differences between 504 and IDEA, but there also are some uh, tremendous interconnections that also need to be looked at. I guess the biggest one, though, is there's no funding for 504. So if you have a 504 student and they're not, a, they don't have a, they're not in the IDEA, then the district's picking up any of those costs that might be with that condition. That's correct. So, for example, uh, sometimes we will get a request to provide a related service, maybe some physical therapy or occupational therapy for fine or gross motor skills. And the parent will say, but my child is not eligible to be classified. I don't want an IEP. I really want these services through the 504 plan. And unfortunately, some of the case law has allowed for that type of service to be provided through 504, which then will mean that the local Board of Education must fund the costs associated, the additional costs associated with that type of service if it is only provided through a 504 accommodation plan. So reasonable could be expensive. Reasonable could be 
somewhat expensive because the one factor you have to realize is that when they do this balancing test of financial hardship, they take into account the entirety of the school district budget. And as we know, most school district budgets are in the millions, even in small districts. And so, therefore, when you're looking at a service that might cost $5,000, is that really an unreasonable financial hardship compared mm-hmm. to the totality of the budget? So some of these uh, comparisons and analysis can be very challenging. Obviously, the more service that is asked for, the more expensive it becomes, Um Certainly, there is a point at which there could be a breaking point that I think a district could prevail on. And one of the things that we argue on behalf of our school districts is that you shouldn't just look at the totality of the budget, but the per-pupil cost. So that if the per-pupil cost of a school district is, let's say, $8,000, and the cost of this one additional service is $8,000, technically what you're doing is doubling the cost for that one child. And what Mm. would that impact be if you were to do that for multiple children? And so there the financial impact becomes much more stark and real to anyone who would be looking at it and a basis for denial. Um, What are some common problems that boards face or is common in the special education litigation or anything that comes up, common mistakes that – I don't want to use the word mistake. That's probably wrong, but – uh, issues that arise? Some of the most common issues that arise, I think, are those that arise in many, many cases that transcend just special education. One that comes to mind is failure to communicate. We hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. I know that's sort of a, a a cliche, but really it is so true in this area as well as in school law in general that the failure to communicate with the parent and truly feel that they are understanding us and the communication back from the parent so that the parent feels that we are really listening to them is such a big factor in all of these cases. And from that comes the trust and the confidence in the school system. When that communication, trust, and confidence breaks down, that is where you're going to have a problem. Another common problem, and we touched on it previously, the supporting documentation. We all know that we're very focused on providing the service. Everyone is trying to do the best job they can. But in special education, the documentation supporting what we are doing is so critical to be accurate and in compliance, and we touched on that. But even beyond the compliance is just the supporting documentation in terms of the progress the child is making from an objective standpoint. If the child is getting a related service of speech or occupational therapy, what is that therapist documenting in terms of the service that's being provided, the the progress that's being made, the benchmarks being met, the goals and objectives being achieved, all of those things should be more than just a one-sentence progress report once a year. A third area, having the right experts for particular disabilities. In the area of special education, one of the most recent 
common explosion is in the area of a demand for specialized services to children on the autistic spectrum. And there have been research-based and case law-supported methodologies that if a school district has not gotten on board with those, it will be very difficult for them to justify the programs and services that they are offering to those unique children. So having the right experts in that area, knowledgeable about the most recent methodologies, able to consult and provide supporting education, training, and consultation in those areas, very, very important. Are there any uh, recent rulings or any upcoming issues that are kind of new that we, we touch on an, the anti-bullying, but are there others that m might not be on the board's radar or even administrator's radar right now, but they should be? Well, as I said, one of the things, um, there are two things that have come to my mind, Ray. Mm -hmm. One is because economics and reductions in force have occurred over the course of the past couple of years for school districts, and there is such economic pressure, there has been a reduction at the youngest and most uh, recently hired level who are the staff that actually have the best training. And that is challenging for a school district when their most recent staff member may be out of school five or ten years in this area, and there is so much new out there that really needs to be adapted and brought into the school. And the other is the compliance is required on a school district in special education 12 months a year. The judges, the courts, the uh, actual, even the federal government and the state law does not accommodate for a 10-month school year. So if a communication comes in in June, first week in July, second week in July, and requires a 10-day response or a 20-day response by law, it cannot wait till September and be in compliance. And this is an ongoing problem for many school districts who do not have a lot of staff that deal with special education in the months of July and August. And I know more recently, in fact, as late as last week, an attorney called me and said that she was very upset that the parent was, you know, the last communication was in June and basically nothing happened over the summer. And it was because the staff went home and there was no money or authorization for overtime or extra compensation for them to work during the summer. So the compliance there is really a concern. And these are some very serious common issues that a lot of boards share and need to be looked at in terms of pooling resources to ensure this doesn't continue into future years and summers. Yeah, I can see boards, uh, districts falling into that trap, but we don't have much time. I have one quick question. Uh, sure. Something, something called the – it's new, the Education Stability Act. Could you uh, briefly uh, tell us a little bit about that and its impact? Right. The Educational Stability Act was signed into law on September 9, 2010, so its first uh, year of implementation was the 10-11 school year, and then we dealt with it again during 11-12. We are now going, uh, obviously, into the third year, but there were a lot of questions and concerns over the past year. And basically what it, it did was it made it clear that when a state agency 
removes a student from a home and places a child elsewhere, outside of the community of the district of residence of the parent, it does not automatically mean that the district of residence will uh, lose responsibility for that child. And it determined that the state agency can decide if it's in the child's best interest to remain the responsibility of that prior school district or whether the student should become the responsibility of the new school district. And it allocates those responsibilities and those costs. And there really is very little that a school district can do to challenge that determination, particularly when uh, the state agency, as well as per perhaps a judge, has decided that reunification is a priority for the future. So what this means is that some school districts who have this happen may find themselves having the financial and legal and educational responsibility for students who are not domiciled within their jurisdiction. And that can be sometimes of great concern, but the law needs to be considered, and if you have any questions about that, that should immediately be referred to the administration and attorney to verify what the responsibility is and whether a challenge is appropriate. Okay, that brings us to the end of the program. Nathania, uh, I'd like to thank you for joining me. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, that brings us to the end of the show. I will let you know that uh, our next program will be on September 26th, and our guest will be Commissioner Christopher Cerf, Uh and that will be at 1.30 in the afternoon. I hope you join me. And once again, thanks. You're very welcome. Bye now. Bye-bye.